0: Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, the mental health crisis in hospitality, tricking your taste buds and saving your seed. Joshna,
1: how are you doing today? Hey, I'm well, I'm well. Still hanging out, still in quarantine, uh, but things are good. Things are good. How are you? It, it's a new normal.
2: Yeah.
0: It really is. Uh, and uh, we have a sourdough starter in the house now. Oh, so, that's lovely. So it's not only a new normal, I'm also becoming more uh, coronavirus normal in my, yeah. <laughs> <In your>, you, <laughs> my behavior. You have
1: fallen into step. <laughs> yeah. It was inevitable, right? Hard to resist, but inevitable. Oh, it's
0: so delicious. So very excited today. We have a guest. We have a guest. Yay! And our guest is uh, Hassel Aviles. She is an events and marketing professional and hospitality innovator. She has 15 years experience in the industry and is the founder of the wildly successful Toronto Underground Market, which changed the game for food events and how cooks connect with their market. She also co-founded Not 9 to 5, which is what we're going to be speaking to her about today. And this is a Canadian community nonprofit initiative focused on normalizing the struggle with mental health and addiction for the hospitality, food and beverage industry. Something I think that is especially relevant right now.
1: Uh, welcome, Hassel. Welcome. It's lovely to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So this article in Civil Eats about the state of affairs and the, the real the crisis uh, that we're seeing, one of the quotes in the piece that really struck me, Hassel, was mm-hmm. uh, a lot of service industry folks are going to commit suicide, adding that rises in alcoholism, depression, and anxiety aren't just likely, but inevitable. Uh, and this, I was. This feels really five alarms. So I would. L- I wanted you to join us to talk about uh, what you're seeing with the community that you're serving here in Canada, and just like let's. How how do we get our heads around what we're going to do here? Please.
2: Okay. Well, thank you for having this conversation. First of all, because I feel like in our industry we actually don't talk about it enough. Um, mm. To put it in, like to give you a better context, I guess of starting the conversation. This. The crisis of mental health and substance use in the hospitality, restaurant, and food and service industry is was an epidemic before the pandemic. Right. So we were already in a situation of crisis before COVID-19. And what I mean by that is that um, we did a study. We put out a survey in early 2019 of January. So that has been open now. And we've had people from all over The world really, but primarily Canada and the US fill it out. And when asked do you live with challenges to your mental health and or addiction, ninety percent of people said yes. Whoa. Ninety percent. Yes. So that's not like fifty percent, that's not like two thirds. Like we're talking we're talking about an epidemic. And that's why I'm saying I'm not under um. I'm not trying to like exaggerate. Like We actually did have an epidemic before the pandemic. So the fear that you're reading in that article, I guess I shouldn't call it fear. The concern um, of that article is serious, and it's real, and it's severe, and it's something that needs to be discussed more often. Um, not 9 to 5 has consciously, intentionally not brought this to the conversation yet, just because we feel that in the last two months, it's been already a bit of an alarming rate of, um, information thrown at people. Um, plus now we have put obviously, um, marginalized workers, which hospitality workers are, you know, into isolation. Um, we are some of the most underpaid workers in our society. And so we just, I, I've known this was coming, um, since about week two of the pandemic, Um, I had a long conversation with my co-founder, Ariel Copeland, who's a chef, about how there is going to be in 6 to 12 to 18 months from now a massive tidal wave of mental health crisis and rates of suicide. Just because when you start to do the research uh, of recession and economic distress, according to the Mental Health Commission of Canada... Those are, you know, economic distress, job loss, and debt are three of the huge factors for increase in suicide. And that is exactly what we find ourselves in currently. Um, plus, you add an isolation, which yeah, is frankly say, the enemy right. of mental health. So, you know, our brains are wired for connection. Um, I try to use the term physical distancing because I don't agree that there should be any kind of pause or any kind of stopping of social connection. Um, We desperately need social connection, actually, more than ever before. Our brains are wired for it, but especially when you're in crisis, you know, there's a lot of really, you know, well-known research doctors that claim, you know, their, their take on it is that the opposite, you know, of addiction is connection. And, you know, I would argue that the, you know, that that is something that we can't forget during this time. The other thing I wanted to point out is that our industry unfortunately has a lot of archaic principles that we still hang on to. And as terrible as this pandemic is in a way, it does give us opportunity for change, and I think yes. that one thing that we've been talking about a lot um, on our webinars, on our social media, in panels, um, any kind of media article or podcast interview, like this yes. one, um, is what really needs to be focused on currently, currently and moving forward as we think about reopening or anything you know related to that, is the importance and the priority that must be put on psychological safety in the workplace. Mm. That has been missing for a really long time. There is a lot of huge, you know, PDFs and articles and protocols and rules and, you know, so much focus on physical safety, and I'm not diminishing that. I think that PPE right. and all of those physical distancing protocols are very important, but what's also equally vital is the psychological safety of people um they're not currently feeling very safe in their workplace again before covid nineteen so now mm-hmm. you throw in this on top of everything else, you know our industry, Joshna, you know better than anyone how much our industry is about to change and is changing, yeah, you know yeah, that's and,
0: definitely uh something that was also in the article, this idea that at least it's opened the conversation. But what is fascinating to me is the fact that these issues were there beforehand and you're, you know, you're 90% statistic that is, I think we can all agree, insanely high.
1: Yep,
2: It is. And sadly, like, that's our research. What do you think are some of the
0: reasons or some of the factors that the hospitality industry is so disproportionately or, or having these Issues.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to add two things to what you said and what I said earlier that I didn't mention is that that research is our own. But what I wanted to point out is that there's actually little to no research um, in Canada on this topic in our industry. Mm -hmm. The difference between our industry and others, I would say, uh, I would like to point out, is the lack of support and the lack of resources, um, and like I just said, the lack of psychological safety in the workplace. So right. when, you, and, and just to clarify, if anyone's listening and they're like, what does she mean by psychological safety? I don't understand yes. what that means. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, Because I, I that's a new Please. term for me in the last five years. So all that means is that people feel safe to take risks, and be vulnerable in front of each other without any negative consequence. And when I Hmm. say that, that means like I can be vulnerable, like Josh, if I work for you, you're my boss. I can be vulnerable in front of you. I can tell you something about that I'm feeling, you know, that I maybe around anxiety or depression or maybe even just like anything that makes me feel vulnerable and that I'm not feeling like my job is at risk. Like, I'm not feeling like you're going to fire me or you're not going to promote me now to the next level of management because you're going to look at me in a different way because I was just vulnerable in front of you and shared something with you. So just to be clear, that's what I mean by psychological safety. And in this industry, that often is not how we build our environments. I grew up in an industry, you know, I will say it is getting better, but I grew up in restaurants where just to give you a few examples. To keep your emotions at the door, please check your stuff at the door. Do not bring your problems, you know, or your emotional, you know, Mm -hmm. mental challenges to work. Don't, please don't talk about them. Um, I was also told that, you know, anytime I expressed any kind of, I guess, um, point of, distress or something that was stressing me out or something that I was concerned about in my workplace. I was shown a pile of resumes, you know, to insinuate that my job was very disposable. I'm very disposable. You can be replaced mm. in a hot minute. Um, it was a very a good way of checking, you know, kind of like shutting the conversation down. So that's the opposite of psychological safety, right? Like those two examples are not environments where you feel safe and where I can be vulnerable. Um, yeah, you're
0: really putting things into perspective for me. I have right. to say, Hassel, I, I appreciate it because when I read in the article about this initiative in the U.S., the "I Got Your Back." Yeah, where they're basically yeah. um, letting people know that. Yes. or they're training some people on the floor to be available to talk, and they're wearing a purple armband to say, yes. "You know, um, you can talk to me if you want to." And I thought this is really basic but now that you're giving me this insight into what is clearly the the culture right that's it seems to be the way things are quote unquote I'm seeing the value of this and it's really you know what you're saying is really resonating but what I found especially interesting in the in the article about the I got your back initiative is the fact that the founder didn't even acknowledge that he needed help and he was making this for other people and then he had this moment where he realized i'm also struggling so it's it seems to be so systemic and so part that it's uh it's repressed and it's just really really stigmatized to be talking about this at all
2: it is and um i i love that you're bringing up his organization. So Patrick Mulvaney is the founder and he's a chef, a very good friend. I adore him. I love giving oh. him credit and I love talking about him and the work he does. I Igotyourback.org is the website if anyone's listening and is interested. Um, Patrick Mulvaney lives in Sacramento, California. He's been leading this conversation for the last little while in the U.S. out of California. Um, him and I are in touch often and I've actually met him when he came to Toronto, I had the privilege to sit down with him and his story is really important. He lost a lot of people. There was a number of suicides that all happened within six week period. And that's what caused him to create, I got your back. I, I, I want to also emphasize that he started something that I I'm looking I've been talking to him for a while now about bringing it into Canada, but one of the fundamental principles behind the, I got your back program, um, is this anonymous way to check in with your team when you first show up to work. So you know, Josh, like when you get to a restaurant, you have to like log in and you clock in for your shift. So the idea is that as you do that, you also check in like kind of what color you're feeling. So I may not be giving this the right colors, but bear with me. Um, There's three colors. There's the kind of like a green, like a stoplight, green, yellow, and red and the green is you know that you're feeling great the yellow is like you're you're okay like you're halfway there but you're also dealing with some stuff and the red is like mayday i'm fragile you know i'm not okay today and so what happens is that people check in with a color that they're feeling and then when you do lineup so before a shift starts in restaurants for anyone that doesn't know or cafes or hospitality in general you usually do a lineup quote unquote and at that time is when you kind of go over daily specials or whatever else is happening that day as you do that the managers pull out all the colors and what they do is they bring it to everyone's attention that for example just this hypothetical example that day we may have uh, 10 people on the floor or 10 people in the restaurant in the kitchen and on the floor back of house and front of house do it we have eight people that are feeling green we have two people that are feeling yellow and we have five people that are feeling red Or two Mm. people that are feeling red. Even if it's one person that is feeling red. And it's not about pointing who is feeling what. It's just about this is how everyone is feeling today. Let's show up with extra empathy and compassion. Because now we know that 20% of our team or a third of our team Mm. or whatever the number is that day is really not doing okay. So it's not about getting into people's problems because this is another thing that I think is a big misconception with mental health. People are so afraid to bring it up because they feel like, well, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a mental health professional. Mm. I can't help you. That's okay. You're not meant to actually help them. Um, I took mental health first aid a couple months ago. And one of the biggest things they teach you is that it's really just about listening. Mm. And it's really just about validating someone's experience. So even just saying something like, You're having a natural reaction to an abnormal event. I mean, in the same way, if I broke my leg in front of you, right, I wouldn't want you to cast me up and give me surgery.
1: Right. But I
2: would want you to maybe call 911 and get me to the help I need. It's yep. the same thing with mental health first aid.
1: It's it's quite elegant, actually. I'm I'm very impressed. If I ever run a kitchen again, I feel like I'm going to employ this.
0: I think it's uh, uh, fantastic, but I I have to pull out another quote from this article, which takes yeah. one further step back, yeah. and honestly it hit me very hard. I'm hoping maybe both of you can comment on this because uh, it made me realize that the the issue goes beyond the 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 kitchen. Or the the restaurant itself. And it said, many workers hope the most important lesson society takes from all this is simply remembering that the people preparing and serving the meals they eat in and out of restaurants are humans with feelings. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, and it's true. That was so hard to read. It's really, really true. And you know, as, uh, Hassel, as you were speaking earlier, I was thinking about this and and thinking about phrases like, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, right? And all of this kind of stuff, just really acknowledging the fact that our industry, for whatever crazy reason, really denies uh, a person's humanity.
2: Yes. I mean, also as a woman of color, you know, in this industry, I've also had many burdens. Um, I will say that, yeah, there's unfortunately still a lot of misogyny, um, in this industry. There's also still a lot of, um, institutional and systemic racism that shows up on a regular basis. Um, but to the point that Morella, like quote that you read, I, I think you're right. This issue is not a back of house kitchen issue. This is actually, um, something that, seeps into every corner of the industry and I would argue from also top to bottom so whether you're an owner operator or industry leader all the way down to being you know mm-hmm. entry level culinary school student or um, even customers or customers so the thing i wanted to point out on your on your quote that you read though there is so much focus and I, and i don't mean this in a flippant way to take away from you know, sustainability and the sourcing of ingredients and all of that. But there is so much focus on the sustainability um, and the ethical treatment of animals or ingredients. Mm. And there's not the same equal focus on the ethical treatment of humans and of the people that work in this industry and of the people producing and making and serving this food. Mm -hmm. And I fundamentally believe that, like, if customers knew – how people actually get treated in this industry and the things that we actually have been told, have seen, have felt, have um, in certain environments that we've been basically forced to work on into and under Mm -hmm. systems that were, you know, have no real choice or voice in changing. um, I think they would be horrified. Um, I did a post about this. Actually I did a video on Instagram yesterday about this because It is something I've been really silent about for most of my career, but I'm kind of at the point, especially right now, I think with pandemic and isolation and all of the, you know, horrific um, demonstrations of racism, I just kind of hit a point where I just, you know, I'm, I'm really, really offended by the silence. On these Mm -hmm. issues, I'm I'm kind of over the silence. I I really now believe that silence is violence, and I Mm. really think it's important to point out. And actually, in my video, I encouraged. I said, if any people that are listening to this that are not from the industry, if you're a customer and you just like to eat out, you buy food from restaurants, bars, you know, or whatever, I really encourage you to ask the owners of the business or ask the people, you know, what's being done about mental health in the workplace? What's being done about, you know, addressing these issues? Because unfortunately, you know, in our industry, I feel that we kind of have shot ourselves in the foot by not speaking Mm. up enough about these systemic issues. Um, And I think there's a lot of also to be said around not Explaining the financials behind this industry. The margins right. that restaurants work under are horrifying. If anybody doesn't know, they're between like 2.8 and 4%, um, compared to many other industries where profit margins are 19%. Um, so it's, it's with not, a lot less work.
1: We right? have with a lot
2: less we work. We have a lot yeah. of physical and emotional labor that we put in. And you're right. Even our own government doesn't really acknowledge some of our um, some of our labor in the same way as they acknowledge other kinds of skilled labor.
1: What a madness that an, that an industry and a culture with such influence and position is so is so um, negligibly. Uh, resourced and considered let's say right that seems to be the, the 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 nut of the issue that we really that we as people in the industry really need to start focusing on
2: absolutely and I think like two final things I'll say is like number one like there is reasons there's historical context for a lot of this I mean if you look into the history of restaurants tipping um, you know right. there's a lot of things and also the brigade system like yep. if from France, like the Cuisine de the Brigade de Cuisine. If you Google that, I highly encourage you to Google that. Um, you know, there's a lot of implications. Anthony Bourdain wrote about it years ago, um, you know, and the it seeps out though. So it's not just the kitchen, as Marilla said. I mean, anything that happens in the kitchen seeps out to the rest of the of the establishment and not just restaurants. I'm talking cafes, hotels, any kind of hospitality outlet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the final thing on the government piece is that like, yeah. A lot of things now are thankfully being, you know, talked about more. Um, we recently launched a YouTube channel. And if you go to our website, www.not9to5.org, um, and you click on our YouTube channel, we actually ha- spoke to an MP about this recently, about Great. the our fear of suicide coming. And she was really wonderful enough to reiterate what we had expressed to her and she talked about it to the House of Commons about how there is going to be this wave of suicide coming in the hospitality industry because of all of these things and because this was an epidemic before COVID-19 but our government doesn't even really support us fully either because we can't use our OHIP card to pay for therapy right? Right, and there's still a lot of mental health resources that are not treated in the same way as physical health is. So it's really exciting because it's a time of opportunity, but there is a lot of work to do and a lot of change mm-hmm. to come.
1: We've got a mountain to climb, but awesome that we're at least talking about it. I and know. I thank to, you for right? putting a
2: spotlight on this conversation. Yes. Thank you to both of you. It's so wonderful.
0: Yeah. Hassel, please remind people once again, what the website is. And uh, I'll, I can say I had a look and it's it's full of fantastic resources.
2: Oh, thank you. Yes. It's Not the letters N O T number nine, letters T O number five dot org. So, www.not nine to five dot org. Um, we named it that because there is nothing about mental health or our industry that runs on the hours of nine to five.
0: That's great. And I, we also wanted to take a moment to acknowledge that these are challenging times for a lot of people. So, uh, for those of you listening, if you're struggling at all, please reach out for help. You can text the word home to 686868 in Canada or to 741741 in the U.S. to connect with a trained crisis responder in Canada. We also have a crisis line you can dial to speak live, which is 1-833-456-4566. And I got all of this information on the not9to5.org website. So thank you so much again, Hassel, for coming in and putting these important resources out there joshna this device came to my attention recently and i i had to share it with you because it is it is out there
1: it really is let's talk about this thing i had i didn't really know what to think um i'm I'm still confused
0: i'll be honest okay good i'm glad to hear that i was you're not alone um, but this device is called the Nori Norimaki Synthesizer, and it's, it's a cylindrical device. I would say it's maybe two or three inches long and about the diameter of a quarter. And then within it, it has five, uh, we'll call them tunnels with gel in them. Sure. And each one has a gel that communicates a different one of our five basic tastes. So we're talking sweet, sour salty bitter umami okay well i have recited those so many times over and every time i have a little moment of anxiety where i'm like please don't brain don't fail me now don't forget forget. (laughs) sweet sour salty bitter umami i should be able to rattle them off no problem but there's always that moment um anyway so so then the way it works is you put this device on your tongue Right. And there are little um, dials that you can use to dial up different tastes. So bitter, sweet, salty, umami, so on. And apparently it tricks your tongue into being able to taste things. So some th- of the things listed in the article, I remember sushi and right. gummy candy. And I, I just find this baffling.
1: I, I didn't understand it at all because I, I'm guessing... That there is like they do dosing, right? They figure out how many bits of each one needs to be offered to your tongue. Yes. To so mimic it, different right? foods. Right. And then the whole somehow becomes greater than the sum of the parts yeah. in your experience. Right. And you because couldn't you have the same like are there infinite permutations and combinations of these of these flavor elements? Yeah. Because right? Because well, it's it sounds okay. like it must be. But
0: okay, so you said something there that I need to jump on. Because this is where I get confused. You said flavor elements. Right. But flavor doesn't come into play at all here.
1: So this it's is just, just taste. the five tastes. <sighs> so it is really so it's interesting not flavor, to me. Right. Right? That's St- wild. So it's really this this curiously like really superficial sensory piece that's not connected to flavor. Or or like anything that goes further into your mouth. Yeah, you know, it's not it would be. it's not
0: spitting out. You know, orange, citrus. You know, cinnamon. Right. No, it's just spitting out right. sweet, sweet, sour, salty, bitter. Oh no, umami. Mm. Um, so I guess to to do sushi, you might put a, a high dose of umami, a slight dose of sweetness, and the saltiness some for the soy uh, and some saltiness. And the nori,
1: yeah.
0: But what's really interesting. To me, is this must be one of those situations where your brain fills in the blanks. Your brain does right? the work uh,
1: to get to the closest, most familiar piece.
0: Yeah, uh, and there's a right? term for it. It's, I think it's called filling, and we know that with sight, it's quite common. I'm sure you've seen those. There's various... I couldn't find one to prep yes. for this podcast I would have loved to pull one up but different uh-huh. tricks online where that you know there's a sentence and something's misspelled or a word is totally, missing totally. and then after yep. they're like "Ooh, check it again we just yes. t- left a word out but your brain automatically filled it Did in um, and it's also a uh-huh. very real thing with uh, with sound like I know that for me my filling skills with sound are not great so when I listen to tv I need to listen to it louder than most people okay uh and if you're shouting to me from across the room i would i might like completely misconstrue what you're saying because if i miss a syllable my brain okay it doesn't uh, feel in doesn't right, right. So, so it's this sort of from what i can understand this filling effect that it makes happens. sense though
1: because i feel like i i feel my brain trying to do this with my smell training okay Right. I feel like I feel my brain trying to fill in this space. I just don't have the memories to fill in the space. Right. But but the urge I, I'm aware of the urge that's that's attempting to, <laughs> to happen. Uh, and I just don't have the data to fill it. That's cool. So this is yeah. tapping in to that. For sure. If, I, I felt that that now makes sense when I understand that we're just talking about this superficial experience on the tongue.
0: That's funny to me that right? what is confusing me makes sense to you. <laughs> yes,
1: I'm like I, it's the glorious complexity that we all are. Yes, um, it is. I like you. I'm having a hard time figuring out what a practical application of this would be, other than the novelty of it. Yeah. Right? And, I don't... I can't figure it out.
0: Uh, it says, you know, it can help you recreate the satisfying feeling of, like, eating a piece of dessert or whatnot, but without uh, the calories. Lies. And I don't think so. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean... Taste is definitely part of the joy of eating, for example, a piece of chocolate cake. But another piece of the joy is that, you know, the texture. The richness.
1: Come the on. The
0: richness and
1: the mouthfeel. Right? It's not just. And the contrast between frosting and cake.
0: Yeah. I mean. Right? That
1: ratio is so key. No.
0: Yeah. I You know, if that was the case, we could just, you know, just grab an essence of chocolate and spray it on our tongue or whatnot. And that would well, this do is the it. trick. And, and, and maybe
1: there are a lot of people who would have us do that. But that's, I'm not, I, yeah.
0: It did, it's interesting though, because now that you've mentioned your training, I wonder if this device could be used for for training with people whose taste
1: taste might that have is true. Hmm. Oh, that's a good one to sort of kickstart. It's like a jumpstart uh, to get the memories and that that brain messaging back up and running.
0: Yeah, but I think for the like time that. being, it's just a novelty device, and it is. I I'm going to go ahead and say one that I would love to play with.
1: Uh, I mean, me too. <laughs>
0: Josh, now, were you aware of these seed banks?
1: I was. I didn't know Uh, these were a When you sent over this bit, I was at a food, a dorky food conference in Oxford. And the people from the seed bank were there telling us all about it. And all of us were sitting in the audience with our eyes bugging out, being like, tell us everything about this magical place. So you're
0: Uh. talking about the one in Norway. Yes. But did you know that this is a thing everywhere? Like there's tons of seed banks?
1: I have heard because there's another one in the UK somewhere. And then I think there's actually one on the continent here in North America somewhere. Uh, But I I tell you, I am relieved to hear uh, that they exist and that they are so full, right? This Norwegian seed bank has almost a million seeds in it right now. And it's just like a huge sigh of relief from a biodiversity perspective to know that someone's on it. And is collecting and cataloging these things in a temperature-controlled environment is amazing.
0: I mean, it's a really cool project, but also a, a fascinating facility. When you were at that um, conference, did they show you a video of... The, they it's did. just a trapdoor in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Well, it's not a trapdoor, um, like, it's a, side it's a door a and somewhere. then you go down yeah. this corridor. Um, so just to fill the listeners in a little bit, we're talking about <laughs> uh, a seed bank, that's in Norway, was established by the Norwegian government to preserve seeds from around the world. There's an application process to get in. And what I think is wonderful is there's no cost to put your seeds in there. And Mm -hmm. the country that puts in the seeds or the organization that puts in the seeds retains ownership and can pull them out whenever they want. And this came to my attention recently because the Cherokee tribe is the first tribe in North America that w- have been able to right. put seeds in to this bank. And it is, they, they have their own seed bank, right. but this is like their backup plan. Yes. And it was fascinating to read that. And, but not surprising, I guess that food is a really critical part of their culture.
1: It's, it was a beautiful piece. I really loved it. Uh, and I love knowing that some of that beautiful corn, it was corn, Um, that was put into the, into this bank. Uh, And I loved the notion that the the presence of the plants is connected to the presence of identity. Yeah. They said they're not Cherokee without their food. Uh, It's wonderful. Uh, And that, and that after so long and so much uh, destruction, right. That they still have this allegiance uh, and this connection. I thought it was really, really uh, exciting. Plus, Uh, we need way more North American indigenous tribes putting seeds in that bank.
0: Yeah, I don't know what the application process is. Um, And like I said, they do have their own seed banks locally, but I was also intrigued because in the piece, they said that the only withdrawal that's ever been made from this seed bank in Norway was uh, in Syria during, it was, I think, right after a civil war. Yes. So I thought that's that's interesting how did the civil war decimate the crops i wasn't sure yep. and i dug into it and it turns out that it didn't decimate the crops it decimated their local seed bank
1: Oh, was destroyed oh that's even more important to have this two-layered backup yeah oh i love so that the okay. seed
0: bank in aleppo was completely de- destroyed okay. so they were able to go to norway Get some seeds ba- back, rebuild their oh, stash, man. and then their send seeds back to...
1: I mean, Holy smokes. There's something really to be grateful for. On a, on a large-scale survival of the planet thing, that's wonderful that they have this. Holy smokes. Uh, although I will say, for the record, uh, I was cu- it was curious that there's no mention of the kinds of seeds. I'm, and I'm talking how these seeds are grown and produced. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially because we know of the volatility of GMO seed and the minute it blows into it can contaminate otherwise organic crops and that sort of thing. So I'm curious about whether uh, about this, the fact that there's no mention of any sort of categorizing or whether GMO stuff would go in one section and organic things would go in another section. I, I'm, I'm curious to dig deeper about that.
0: Yeah, my understanding is that their focus is on, on heirloom varieties.
1: Right. Um, uh, it sounded like it, and, the, and it said something about them being uh, really uh, crucially necessary or vitally connected mm-hmm. to existence, which my heart would like to believe is or means organic as well, but because they didn't mention it, I thought to myself, I was like, maybe that's not an exclusive uh, notion.
0: Well, we're just going to have to go out there and check it out, I think. I like it. Field Wouldn't that trip? be amazing? <laughs> <laughs> Hot <laughs> plate field trip. I love it. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at hotplatepod. Follow me at Birology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Original music by Dave Bell. Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening.